0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 402nd episode, it's all about Roy Chapman Andrews, a very famous paleontologist.
1: You might recognize his name from all his finds in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia.
0: Like Velociraptor, among many others. We also have dinosaur of the day Gravatholus. And a fun fact. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons, and this week we'd like to thank Talon, Wouter, Cameron, Shelby, Kalen, Mycoraptor, Ellen, Richard, Misunderstood Overraptor, and Robert.
1: Yes, thank you so much for supporting our show, and thank you to all of our listeners and patrons. We couldn't keep doing this show without you. All right, this one is kind of a lengthy episode but it'll be good. I promise.
0: And it's pretty much all you.
1: Yeah. Especially if you like hearing about adventurers. So Roy Chapman Andrews, he was an explorer, an adventurer and a zoologist and naturalist who lived from 1884 until 1960. He died of a heart attack. Eventually he did become the director of the American Museum of Natural History. So he's had quite an influence. He's done a lot, but Today we'll be focusing on his expeditions of the Gobi Desert in Mongolia that happened mostly in the 1920s. Now in addition to exploring, he was a prolific writer and he wrote a lot of books as well as articles and his writings inspired many people to become paleontologists. Just a few of his books in case you want to read them for yourselves include Whale Hunting with Gun and Camera, Camps and Trails in China, Across Mongolian Plains, On the Trail of Ancient Man, Ends of the Earth, This Business of Exploring, Hmm. Under a Lucky Star, All About Dinosaurs, and In the Days of the Dinosaurs. And for this episode, a lot of the things we'll be talking about come from his books Across Mongolian Plains, On the Trail of Ancient Man, This Business of Exploring it Under a Lucky Star.
0: Did you read all those books? I did. Oh, man.
1: They're very interesting. (laughs) He is a good writer.
0: You didn't want to learn about whaling? (laughs)
1: Well, our podcast, we don't really talk about whales. That's true. So it didn't make sense to read that one at this time. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe in the future. So Andrews was born January 26th in 1884 in Beloit, Wisconsin.
0: I know where that's at. Not too far from where I was born.
1: Oh, good. Good.
0: I got to know all the famous Wisconsinites. It's a requirement when you're from a state with not a lot of famous people to know every single famous person from that state.
1: That reminds me, I should mention another big source for this episode is the Roy Chapman Andrews Society, Ooh! which they made because they wanted to spotlight a famous Wisconsinite. Nice. So Andrews, he liked to explore the forests and fields nearby, and he was a skilled marksman. He taught himself taxidermy, and then he used that money he earned from taxidermy to help pay for his tuition at Beloit College, where he got an English degree.
0: (laughs) That's a lesser known method for paying for college.
1: Yes. (laughs) Now, according to Edwin Colbert, Andrews was influenced by the book, A Handbook of North American Birds by Frank M. Chapman from the American Museum of Natural History and once andrews graduated he applied to work at the amnh there were no openings for his level at the time but he really wanted to work there so he ended up working there starting in 1906 sweeping floors and helping in the taxidermy department a few sources called him a janitor other sources made it seem like it was kind of he was able to do some taxidermy and then some sweeping of the floors hmm. that kind of thing yeah
0: just getting paid for odd jobs possibly
1: could it be yeah well, he did spend Seven months mopping the floors of the AMNH, and and then the director of the museum at the time, Herman Bumpus, requested that he and taxidermist Jimmy Clark—so Andrews wasn't actually a taxidermist at this point—secure a skeleton of a whale that had been killed by fishermen in Long Island. The two of them, they bought the whale for $3,200. They worked with a dozen, what was it deemed, sympathetic fishermen to get the bones from the beach. This was all happening in sub-freezing weather. Oh, boy. Yeah. They had to wait for a storm to pass with hurricane-force winds, and then, because of the storm, the bones were buried deep in the sand, so it took them three days to extract and get all the bones ready to ship. But this experience motivated Andrews to reform and modernize exploration and make exploration more efficient.
0: Yeah. $3,200 seems like a lot of money, especially back then, Mm -hmm. because you might multiply that by like 10 to 20x. So you're talking about like thirty to $60,000 to get a skeleton that's already on a beach?
1: Well, that's interesting. Your mind went to the money part. In my mind, maybe because I read his books, was about how he prepares and how he streamlines everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. They
0: kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. If you're more efficient, that also makes it cheaper.
1: That's true. <laughs> Over the next few years, he worked and he got his master's degree in mammology from Columbia University. And he started off doing whale research- Maybe you guessed that based on that whale book he wrote. <laughs> and he was researching other aquatic mammals. He was named an honorary scout by the Boy Scouts of America in nineteen twenty-seven. Just some random facts here. From nineteen thirty one to nineteen thirty-four, he was president of the Explorers Club. And then he was the director of the AMH in nineteen thirty-four and retired in nineteen forty-two so that he could write.
0: Wow. So he went from sweeping the floors to director. hmm And that didn't even take him that long. What was that, like twelve years?
1: 1906 is when he started.
0: 28 years. That's a little bit longer.
1: Yeah. Now, in 1999, that's when the Roy Chapman Andrews Society formed in Beloit, Wisconsin to honor him and his work. And they also present a Distinguished Explorer Award every year. A little bit about his personal life Andrews married his first wife, Yvette Borup, in 1914. From 1916 to 1917, they led the Asiatic zoological expedition of the AMNH in Yunnan and other provinces in China. They did divorce in 1931. They had two sons together. And then he married his second wife, Wilhelmina Christmas, in 1935.
0: Wow, that's quite a name. Yes. Wilhelmina Christmas?
1: Yes. I did have to double check that her last name was Christmas.
0: It's an unusual last name for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. His first wife, Yvette, had asked for a separation back in 1927, and then they got divorced on the grounds of desertion, since he spent most of his time in the field.
0: Desertion. Yep. <laughs> wow. Well, I guess you back then you needed a reason. You weren't allowed to just get divorced because you wanted to get divorced.
1: Yeah. So 1920 is when Andrews started planning his expeditions to Mongolia. Andrews and Henry Fairfield Osborne, who was then the president of the A. M. H. They were both for this out of Asia theory, where the idea is that modern humans originated in Asia. And that led to the expeditions known as the Central Asiatic Expeditions in Mongolia. They didn't end up finding human remains, really, on these expeditions, but they did find a lot of important dinosaur and mammal fossils. As an example, in 1922, Andrews and his team found a fossil of Balacotherium, now known as Indrigotherium, which is a giant hornless. Rhinoceros. Hmm.
0: You never know what you're going to find when you go looking for bones. It's hard to say you're looking for a specific group of animals (laughs) out in the field.
1: One of the most well-known things, at least at the time, that came out of these expeditions were the dinosaur eggs.
0: Oh, yeah. He's often cited as the first ever to find dinosaur eggs.
1: Yes. So this is from his book on the Trail of Ancient Man. Quote, the Gobi Desert is the only place in the world where dinosaur eggs have been discovered up to the present with the possible exception of some fragments from Rognac, France. And we did talk about that back in episode 310 as part of our dinosaur of the day, Hypselosaurus.
0: Yeah, he wasn't actually the first to find dinosaur eggs, but he gets credit for it a lot.
1: He gets credit for it a lot. And Actually, in his other books, he says he was the first or that they were the first human. So it seemed to go back and forth a little bit.
0: I guess the fact that his books were popular and people read that, they just assume that he's not missing anything, but he was. So he might be the original source for that misinformation on him being the first person to find dinosaur eggs.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah. But then he also says on the Trail of Ancient Man, which is one of his earlier books. So I I don't really know what happened there. (laughs) Now, he and his team, they found their first dinosaur eggs on July 13th of 1923. At first, they were thought to be protoceratops eggs. And then in 1995, so way, way later, it was found that those were the oviraptor's eggs based on embryos found in 1993. And that's how we know that oviraptor got the bad reputation, the undeserved reputation.
0: Because it was sitting on its own eggs.
1: Yes, it wasn't being an egg thief. They found the eggs at Flaming Cliffs. But it was an exploratory mission at that point, so they had to come back during their next expedition. Now, according to his book, Under a Lucky Star, they returned to the flaming cliffs in the second expedition. And on their second day, George Olson on the team found fossil eggs. Three of them were exposed on a sandstone ledge, and there were fragments embedded in the rock. Olsen scraped away loose rock and found the skeleton of a dinosaur lying four inches above the eggs. And Andrews said the eggs were, quote, much like a loaf of French bread. In his book, On the Trail of Man, Andrews wrote, quote, the preservation is beautiful. Some of the eggs have been crushed, but the pebbled surface of the shells is as perfect as if the eggs had been laid yesterday instead of 10 million years ago. Hmm. Now, a few days later, they found more eggs, I think up to 25 eggs. Wow. It was really easy to excavate. Some of them were on the surface. Others were showing their ends in the rock and from Under a Lucky Star, quote, one nest in soft, disintegrated sandstone could be excavated with a camel's hairbrush.
0: Wow. That's like we talk about how it's unrealistic in those pits at natural history museums where it's like, hey, kids, be a paleontologist, brush off this dirt Mm -hmm. and excavate the bones. But that's what happens
1: in the flaming cliffs. (laughs) So Andrew said that the flaming cliffs were a place for dinosaurs during breeding season also from Under a Lucky Star, quote, "'Like living reptiles, dinosaurs scooped out shallow holes and laid their eggs in circles with the ends pointing inward. Sometimes there were three tiers of eggs, one on top of the other.' the lady dinosaur covered her eggs with a thin layer of sand and left them to be hatched by the sun's rays. She didn't sit on them like a hen. It was necessary for the covering sediment to be loose and porous in order to admit warmth and air. And it is possible that the exceedingly fine sand at this spot was particularly well adapted to act as an incubator, End quote. I mostly took that quote because he said lady dinosaur.
0: <laughs> lady dinosaurs, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes the males incubate eggs too. <laughs> it's not just the lady dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. But that's interesting because nowadays we think, like with that oviraptor, it actually was an incubating dinosaur, and the ones that had more spherical eggs may have been ones that just abandoned them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's a pretty good analysis talking about how they had to get air and you lay them in a place to stay warm because those are all things that birds and dinosaurs would have had to look for. Yeah, if they were burying their eggs.
1: And he. He described multiple types of dinosaur eggs, too. They know that there were different dinosaurs that laid these eggs based on the shape of the eggs, too. Now, Andrew said before this discovery, they didn't know for sure if dinosaurs laid eggs. You know, they just kind of thought it probably happened. Yeah,
0: because viviparity or laying live young happens all the time and involves like multiple times in all sorts of lineages.
1: Yeah. He also said it was pure luck that they found their eggs. He wrote in On the Trail of Man that Norman Lovell, who was on the team, found the eggs. And Norman was a motor transport expert, quote, but his tastes run to anything that has an element of risk in it. (laughs) He was always poking about the flaming cliffs looking for eagles' nests, which usually were so high that we would have to cut steps in the sandstone wall to reach them. (laughs) It was in this way that he found the dinosaur eggs, end quote.
0: While looking for eagle eggs, (laughs) he found dinosaur eggs?
1: Yeah. I guess he was looking for dinosaur eggs. (laughs) And he saw a nest at the Edge of a plane, and he crawled on his hands and knees. He lay flat on his stomach to see this nest, and his hand struck something sharp. And said, "Quote: It was the knife-like edge of a broken dinosaur eggshell." So yes, that does sound lucky. It was really hard to excavate those eggs because there was a strong wind, and they all had to lie down to avoid being swept over the brink.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because they were excavating them on a cliff.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Andrew said that a lot of people were disappointed when they came back with these eggs because the eggs were so small. They're about nine inches long. But he defended these eggs saying, quote, a nine foot dinosaur, mostly tail, could not be expected to do much better than a nine inch egg. That's a ratio of an inch of egg to a foot of dinosaur. Personally, I think it was a pretty good effort.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, is that too different if a chicken's like a foot long and their eggs are like an inch long? Mm -hmm. Sort of similar proportion. But
1: I think at that point, people thought dinosaurs is, Giant creatures, so yeah, with huge giant eggs, giant eggs, yeah. Now they found about twenty-five eggs in the first expedition, and then in their next expedition, they found at least forty. So, so many eggs. In the book *The Business of Exploring*, he wrote that they went back to Iron Babasu, one of the localities, in 1928, specifically to go egg hunting. And Walter Granger, who was on their team, found several nests together. Andrews wrote, quote, Evidently, the hen dinosaurs regarded this porous sediment as particularly suitable for egg hatching. They were the duck-billed iguanodonts, which sat upon their hind legs and used the short, weak forearms only in feeding. Imagine this sandbank 15 or 20 million years ago, crowded with dinosaurs. Each one scooped out a shallow hole in which to deposit its eggs. These were nearly round, hard-shelled, and probably white, 15 to 25 in number arranged in a circle with ends pointing inward and in two or three layers. After the mother dinosaur had covered them lightly with sand, she left them to be hatched by the sun's warmth. But doubtless, each one kept a watchful eye upon her nest.
0: That's a really nice description.
1: It is. Yeah, I told you, he's a good writer. So he said that these eggs were different from the ones found in the Flaming Cliffs. They weren't as long. They looked somewhat like large crocodile eggs. And he said, quote, Our appetite for eggs was satisfied in two days, and we proceeded east. And east of that locality is where they found mastodons. So they're always finding something. Yeah. Now back in New York, after their first expedition, Andrews gave lectures of his team's finds in his book *Under a Lucky Star*. He said four thousand people tried to crowd in the museum lecture hall at the AMNH, and that hall only fit fourteen hundred people. And most people were interested in the dinosaur eggs. He wrote, quote, dinosaur eggs, dinosaur eggs. That was all I heard during eight months in America. There was no getting away from the phrase. Vainly did I try to tell of the other vastly more important discoveries of the expedition. No one was interested. No one even listened. Eventually, I became philosophical about it. After all, the situation had its bright side, end quote. And by that, he means that he used it to his advantage to help raise funds for the expedition.
0: Mm, yeah. People do want to hear about dinosaurs. That's why we made a podcast about them.
1: Yes. (laughs) But he's saying specifically the eggs.
0: Yeah. Oh, so like not even the other dinosaur discoveries that he made. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is weird.
1: (laughs) Although I think he was more interested in their mammal finds, too. They had some pretty impressive mammal finds.
0: Yeah. We found a few paleontologists over the years who intended to study early human evolution or mammal evolution, but then kept finding dinosaurs. And Mm -hmm. it was like, I guess I'll do that then. (laughs)
1: Now, when Andrews returned to New York, at the time he was staying with Osborne, and he said that he proposed over breakfast one morning to auction off one dinosaur egg as a PR stunt to also get people to donate to the expedition, even if they weren't as wealthy as, say, a Rockefeller, because up until this point he'd gotten very wealthy people to donate, but he wanted anybody to donate. He basically wanted a crowdfund. So they told reporters who were very interested in this PR stunt to stress to the public it's up to them whether or not they keep exploring in the Gobi, meaning they need the money to keep going. Mm -hmm. They got a lot of offers right away from universities, the National Geographic Society, Illustrated London News for this egg. But the PR stunt did backfire a bit because Andrews had told the Chinese and Mongolian governments that while the eggs were scientifically important, they weren't worth anything money-wise. Oh, boy. And then one of these eggs, it made it in all the papers. It got auctioned off for $5,000. And Andrews and his team had found 30 eggs in total. So it took him a while to convince these governments otherwise. And this delayed their next expedition.
0: Because it sounds like you're just exploiting the land, taking all the super valuable stuff back to your country and selling it for huge profits. Yes,
1: which he was not trying to do, but he knew how it looked.
0: Yeah, because it was fundraising. But yeah, this is why selling fossils is so controversial, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because there are definitely pros and cons.
1: Andrews did get other offers for ways to make money, like one New York banker proposed making casts of the egg and then having Andrews' signature on it. And they would produce a million copies and then give him royalties. But he decided not to because he did want to stick to the science as Mm. much as possible.
0: He could use the proceeds to pay for expeditions.
1: He could have, but he just didn't feel comfortable with it. Yeah, I suppose. So now we'll move on to his expeditions in Mongolia in general. I mean, Andrews explored the desert, the sea, and the mountains, but he carried out multiple expeditions of Central Asia. He had seen a couple of glimpses of Mongolia in 1916 as part of his trip of the Asiatic Zoological Expedition, where he spent 19 months in Asia and collected mammal skeletons, and he wanted to go back. So he went back in the spring of 1919, and he called Mongolia the land of yesterday. He saw a lot of possibilities there. For this trip, he learned that he could possibly use motor cars in the Gobi Desert, as well as a caravan of camels, which was pretty game-changing for the kind of work they were doing.
0: Yeah. The, even now, Mongolia is not the most hospitable place for motor vehicles. Imagining doing it in 1919 is really impressive.
1: Yes. So for this trip to Mongolia, Henry Osborne furnished about half the funds that they needed and Andrews raised the rest. And he was able to spend five months in the Gobi Desert. He wrote, quote, Never, I think, have I been happier in the field than during that summer in Mongolia, because he was able to go wherever he pleased. The plan was to look for human remains. And in the press, their expedition was known as the Missing Link Expedition.
0: (laughs) Everyone used to talk about missing links. Mm -hmm. But paleontology is literally nothing but missing links. Every single specimen is a link.
1: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You can find a piece of the link and then have more questions about other links.
0: Every missing link creates two new missing links on either <laughs> side of it. It's like Hydra. <laughs> yep.
1: Now, for the funding, Andrews just called up JP Morgan and pitched him. He was looking for a quarter million dollars for five years of expeditions. Morgan gave him $50,000. And the rest, Andrews got from other bankers, Rockefeller, trustees of the AMH, and a lot of wealthy New Yorkers because he went to a lot of dinners for fundraising purposes. Hustling. He was very much a hustler. He also got offers from an oil company and a mining syndicate, but he did want the expedition to be strictly scientific, so he turned them down because they wanted to send some of their people with him to look for oil along the way.
0: I didn't realize that connection between paleontology and oil exploration went all the way back to Roy Chapman Andrews' days.
1: Yeah. And he said it didn't occur to him at the time that having backers like Rockefeller and Morgan made it seem like there were strings attached, but Andrus said that they all donated purely for science and exploration, although it took him a while to convince the Chinese and Mongolian governments of this.
0: He kept convincing those governments as well, which is impressive.
1: Yeah. Well, he also made sure that's what he was doing. So that first expedition to the Gobi Desert, Andrus took five Dodge cars and two Fulton trucks. and. They were able to do 10 years of work in five months because they had these automobiles.
0: Compared with if they were trying to do it with like horses, I guess.
1: Camels, yeah. And there was still a lot of money that they needed for all the people and the camels involved because they did have camels and their provisions. They did have 75 camels. Oh, man. They had 400 pounds of supplies. And then his 1925 expedition had 125 camels, so it just kept growing.
0: Wow, that's a lot of camels.
1: Yeah, The town of Urga, now Uambator, was the home base for their expedition. So they sailed to China in March of 1921 and arrived in Peking, now known as Beijing, on April 14th. And they didn't go to the Gobi until April 17th of 1922 because they had to sort out their permits, their staff, provisions, equipment, get all those camels, all that stuff.
0: Wow, so they were there for over a year.
1: Yes. Took a long time to prepare
0: I guess they couldn't just arrange it all in advance like we would now with the internet and phones and Mm -hmm. all that jazz.
1: Exactly. (laughs) They took their cars over 3,000 miles, and that proved that they could access remote areas with cars. And they found a lot of fossils. There were small dinosaurs, parts of large dinosaurs, egg fragments, hundreds of specimens of mastodon, rhinoceros, rodents, horses, deer, giant ostrich, and more. Wow! Now- Being able to successfully take those cars through the desert garnered a lot of interest. By the end of their second expedition, other cars were using the trails that they'd mapped out. He wrote in Under a Lucky Star, quote, It was a striking example of how quickly commerce follows on the heels of exploration.
0: That's a nice little tagline to support science.
1: Yeah. He also wrote, quote, Mongolia, a land of mystery, of paradox and promise. The hills swept away in the far-flung graceful lines of a panorama so endless that we seem to have reached the very summit of the earth. Never could there be a more satisfying entrance to a new country. End quote. So, again, a good writer. And also, he really enjoyed his time in Mongolia.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Mongolia sounds like a really beautiful place. It would be nice to go there sometime.
1: hmm He also wrote that, Three explorers had crossed Mongolia before his team, Raphael Pompeli in 1870, Ferdinand von Richthofen in 1877, and V.A. Obruchev from 1894 to 1896. None of them, though, had reported about extinct animals except Obruchev, who mentioned a few rhinoceros teeth. So Andrews said he and his team were warned, quote, you will find rock and sand, but few fossils.
0: (laughs) that was is famously wrong
1: i guess they needed those cars <laughs> mm-hmm. in on the trail of ancient man andrews wrote about walter granger how on the second expedition he showed andrews a bunch of bone fragments from his pocket and he said quote well roy we've done it the stuff is here we picked up 50 pounds of bones in an hour <laughs> <laughs> so they they celebrated and andrews wrote quote no prospector ever examined the washings of a gold pant with greater interest than we handled the little heap of fossil bones. He also wrote, quote, I saw a great bone beautifully preserved outlined in the rock. There was no doubt it was a dinosaur. He wrote that in Under a Lucky Star and said that that was the first indication that their theory that Asia being the mother of life for Europe and America might be true.
0: That's pretty funny since we do think that humans in North America and South America came through Asia, but the fossils they're looking at were at the very end of the Cretaceous. Mm -hmm. So this is like not the origin of really anything.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They really wanted to believe it though. They did. (laughs) So later in the expedition, that's when they found the fossil eggshells in the flaming cliffs, Walter Granger picked up bits of the shells, which he thought at first were from extinct birds, which I guess in a way, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and he wrote in under a lucky star quote in the late afternoon sun the brilliant red sandstone seemed to shoot out tongues of fire and so we named the spot the flaming cliffs
0: and so it has been called ever since
1: it's a nice name it is they also found out while on that expedition that the reptile skull they'd found a year before was an ancestor of Ceratopsians, and Osborne ended up naming it Protoceratops andrewsi in honor of Andrews. But Andrews said that it should have been named after Shackelford, who found it. But he said the leaders of the expeditions tend to get more credit.
0: If it was a species of T Rex, it would be nicknamed like Shackelford, you know, like Jane and mm, Pete and yeah. all those. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they also found a quarry of carnivorous and herbivorous dinosaur fossils at Iron so they probably drifted together after they died and sank into soft mud. In Under a Lucky Star, he wrote, quote, The number of dinosaurs that swarmed in this region during the age of reptiles baffles the imagination. It must have been a nightmare country filled with goblin-like creatures, stranger even than those born of delirium. Today, in place of this weird past world, lie the silent, windswept dunes of the Gobi Desert, parched and blistering under the summer sun, in the winter an area of arctic desolation. End quote.
0: Yeah, there's a lot in common between Mongolia today and like the Badlands, mm-hmm. where it's pretty inhospitable these days. Although <laughs> I guess it was inhospitable back then in a different way.
1: Yes. When Andrews wasn't in the field, he was often out raising money for his expeditions. So in addition to making money from you know that PR stunt with the egg and lectures, he also got offers from newspapers, including the New York Times, and they said they wanted to be the ones to publish his findings exclusively as news. But he turned them down because he said others on his team are private individuals. And also the Central Asiatic Expedition is under the am which is a public institution with support from New York City. And not giving news to other papers equally could get the museum into too much trouble.
0: It's almost like a, the early days of open access.
1: A little bit, yeah. Now, on their first expedition, I mentioned that they used Dodge motor cars, And when they're done with them, they sold them for more money than they paid for because (laughs) there were Chinese importers of wool and furs from Mongolia who said, quote, we know these cars can do the job because they've already been there. Perhaps new ones won't be as good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Go with the ones that you've seen do the job, I guess.
1: Yeah. So Dodge ended up calling Andrews for an advertising opportunity with their next expedition. And Andrews agreed and they got eight new cars. Dodge sold a lot of cars because of the publicity, and Andrews said he saved about $150,000 on that expedition. They also got free gas, oil, and candles from Standard Oil Company, but Andrews didn't think that that company recouped their costs. He wrote in Under a Lucky Star, quote, This trading of goods for advertising was entirely legitimate, I felt. We simply endorsed publicly products which had proved their worth on our first expedition— There were, however, critics who said we had sold out to Dodge Brothers and Saccone, but it didn't bother me in the slightest. In a big public show, one must expect criticism, whatever one does, end (laughs) quote.
0: It's always going to be haters.
1: Yeah. Andrews also gave lectures almost every day to spread the word and to get in touch with people who might donate to his expeditions. So over four months, he traveled all over. He spoke to 125 audiences and he raised nearly $100,000, but he wrote in... Under a Lucky Star, quote, it engendered a bad habit. I began to talk incessantly and have never ceased. Now, every time my wife and I walk down Upper Fifth Avenue and see the electric sign RCA blazing in the sky, signifying Radio Corporation of America, she says, that's you. (sighs) My continual flow of words has been both a fault and a virtue. It bores my friends without a doubt, but it did make me a good salesman. I needed to be, for I had set my financial goal at $300,000, end quote. I can relate. (laughs) (laughs) So he had a plan for each city he visited for his lectures. His secretary put together a list of people who might be able to donate money. And then usually somebody in the city would invite him to dinner. And he said he would love to come to dinner and hinted he'd hoped so-and-so were there from his list. And usually that so-and-so person came. And he said he was completely shameless because it was always in the back of his mind he knew his job was to raise that $300,000 for his expedition. So for his 1925 expedition, he was able to get 50 men, 8 cars, a lot of gear, but he said it might have been too much. It did work out well because back at the Flaming Cliffs, they found, quote, bigger and better eggs. And also on the expedition... They found bits of dinosaur eggshell drilled into necklaces by humans who lived ten to twenty thousand years ago. They called those humans the Dune Dwellers.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Mm-hmm. It's a really early example of paleontology. That's the I think that's the earliest one I've ever heard of. Ten to twenty thousand years ago, for using a fossil for something.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It's definitely one of the earliest. I don't know if it's the earliest.
0: That's pretty old. That's mm-hmm. amazing. And we'll hear more about Andrews, Roy Chapman Andrews, and his expeditions in a moment. But first, we need to take a quick sponsor break.
1: All right, back to Roy Chapman Andrews and his adventures in China and Mongolia. Now, Andrews liked spending time in Peking, also known as Beijing. Even at a house there for 12 years, I'm pretty sure he spoke Mandarin. There wasn't anything that said directly. Sometimes he'd talk about saying some things in Mandarin, Hmm. but he also lived there for 12 years, so it would make sense.
0: That's a long time. You'd think you'd pick up at least some of the language.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, around 1926 and 1927, people in China started resenting foreigners, which made it a little bit difficult for the later expeditions. Before I get into that, back to the camels. For the 1928 (sighs) expedition, they had 125 camels. And camel wool was also useful for helping to pack fossils. Andrew said that camels shed about the same rate that they collected their fossils.
0: Oh, man. <laughs> I didn't realize they shed so much.
1: Me either. You still had to be careful not to take too much wool because they needed it for warmth. But camels are slow, especially compared to cars. The camels could go maybe 10 to 15 miles per day, and they needed to leave five to six weeks before the car so that they could all meet at the same time in the desert with their supplies. Mm. So back to the late 1920s, after their expedition in 1928, the Chinese government confiscated Andrews and his team's fossils and accused them of quote trespassing on China's sovereign rights and quote stolen the nation's priceless treasures, end quote. Now Andrews wasn't happy because they'd been working with a bunch of Chinese scientific societies. Eventually They were able to get their specimens back, but Andrews said, quote, a bitter feeling had been engendered on both sides. It took him all of 1929 to negotiate for his fossils back, and then Andrews did one more expedition in 1930. He was pretty disappointed with all the new restrictions. They weren't allowed to make maps anymore, for example. Oh, weird. Yeah, so he decided to quit. And he said that it stopped short a dream of his of establishing an International Institute for Asiatic Research. His plan was to study remote areas that aren't well mapped yet because airplanes made it easier to travel there. And, quote, to learn what they can give for education, culture, and human welfare. That is the exploration of the future. He also wrote, quote, if we are to understand our world of today, we must know its past. The key lies in Central Asia. The scientific attack must be made systematically like the campaign of an army to ensure best results. It must be international. It calls for a utopian state of international cooperation, to be sure, but I do not think this is too much to expect in the future, though it probably will not come about while I am alive. End quote.
0: It's quite a vision.
1: Yes. Part of his modernizing exploration, I think. Yeah. Andrews did say that he appreciated every person who was part of the expeditions. He wrote, quote, The fact that during those years in the Gobi, in days of hardship and disappointment, sandstorms and sunshine, we never had a single quarrel is a great satisfaction. I know that each man on our staff thinks of his Gobi experience as among the most memorable of his life. All of them have told me so. We worked together as a happy family because each one showed himself to be worthy of the respect and affection of all the others." In the 1930 expedition, they found a lot of mammals. Andrews also wrote about how they lost most of their alcohol in a big sandstorm one night. He wrote, quote, whether or not a fossil hunter subscribes to the late 18th amendment is neither here nor is it there. The fact remains that he must have alcohol. <laughs> not for the good of his body, but for the good of the fossils. Soft bones must be hardened with shellac before they can be removed. The shellac must be cut with alcohol, end quote. So after they lost their alcohol in the sandstorm, they said they couldn't work until they had more alcohol. So they briefly went back to Beijing to get some.
0: Yeah. Fortunately, they didn't have the 18th Amendment in China, so alcohol wasn't prohibited there.
1: They were teased <laughs> when they came back, something like, oh, we didn't realize you needed so much alcohol <laughs> kind of thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. We don't use alcohol anymore. Or we don't really shellac fossils before we take them out either. Mm-hmm. tend to jacket them and get a little more careful because sometimes that... Damages the fossils and it also disrupts if you're trying to do chemical analyses later. But at the time, I guess that was the standard and they did need a lot of alcohol. Yeah. I think they also probably drank a fair amount of it.
1: Probably. That's what I thought when I first read. They <laughs> <laughs> had the same reaction as you, Garrett. <laughs> yeah. And then I read it a little more closely like, oh, okay, they had other purposes. Mm-hmm. Now, Andrews knew that the 1930 expedition would probably be their last because of all the new restrictions to foreigners. Around halfway through that expedition, they found this area where they thought there might be primate fossils. They called it Wolf Camp, known for all the wolves in the area. There were bog and river deposits along an ancient lake, which might have trapped some primates. But they didn't have enough time to do much there other than initial explorations, and they had to get back to Peking or Beijing soon because of war news. Andrews wrote, quote, Walter Granger and I stood in front of our tent on the last evening, looking at the great pile of fossil specimens. Then we turned to the shadow-flecked badlands filled with the light of a gorgeous sunset. And he said to me, Roy, we've given the Gobi some of the best years of our lives, but the desert has paid its debt, end quote. So Andrews was disappointed, but he was hopeful that others in the future would find more fossils. He wrote, Quote, we are more than ever convinced that Central Asia was the paleontological Garden of Eden. Future work will demonstrate whether we are right or wrong. End quote.
0: It was definitely proven right.
1: Yeah, there's a lot there. Andrews, in his writing, he was pretty optimistic in all of his books, and he had a lot of takeaways from his expeditions. I'll read a few quotes about them. So the first one is, quote, before the Central Asiatic expeditions went to the Gobi Desert, Mongolia was virtually unknown scientifically. We were told it was a desolate waste of sand and gravel signifying nothing. Desolate it is in all truth, but we found it to be a veritable treasure house packed with unknown riches. Those years of work revealed a new volume in the history of the earth, to quote Professor Henry Fairfield Osborne, whose brilliant prophecy it was that sent us there, end quote. He also wrote, quote, We have learned that Central Asia is the oldest continuously dry land in the world, In other words, when Europe and America were still being periodically elevated and submerged, Central Asia was dry land and has remained so since the middle of the age of reptiles. Underneath the plateau, there is an enormous granite batholith, probably the largest in the world, which acts as a floor on which the later sediments have been deposited. We have found that the plateau was never covered by ice during the period when glaciers were periodically descending and withdrawing over the continents of Europe and America, in Central Asia, there were only small glaciers in the mountains, which did not extend far out on the plains themselves. In Pleistocene time, glacial epochs were represented in the Gobi region by a change to more humid climate and interglacial epochs by return to desert conditions, and quote. Andrews also said that as a zoologist, he lacked knowledge in other branches of science, which was a disadvantage. So, for his Central Asiatic Expeditions, he wanted a group of interdisciplinary scientists to make the most of the puzzles they might find, and he believed that this kind of collaboration was the exploration of the future, having these multiple types of experts in the field. He wrote, quote, To those who imagine that exploration has lost its romance, I may say that the qualities of courage and endurance, the willingness to undergo hardships and to face death, are just as necessary today as they were to the first man who struggled through snow towards the pole or braved the sandstorms of the desert, end quote. So you gotta be pretty sturdy in addition to <laughs> having a multidisciplinary team. Yeah. When they found one of their first dinosaur bones, which at the time they just thought was some kind of reptile, Andrews wrote that Dr. Berkey had told him, quote, We are standing on Cretaceous strata on the upper part of the Age of Reptiles the first Cretaceous strata, and the first dinosaur ever discovered in Asia, north of the Himalayan mountains.
0: That's really significant.
1: Yeah. I guess originally they thought it was reptilian, then later they realized it was a dinosaur.
0: Yeah, but I mean, dinosaurs are reptiles. Reptiles are just sort of a weird group.
1: Yes. Andrews attributed that find to having geologists and paleontologists with them on the trip. He wrote, quote, Geology and paleontology are so intimately related that one is incomplete without the other, Mm -hmm. end quote.
0: That's a nice quote. Mm-hmm.
1: He said that they only spent 10 days at Irene Dabasu in 1922, and they wanted to more carefully study the area. Andrew said he was also impatient in general to find fossils. He wrote, quote, I am hardly philosophical enough for a paleontological collector. Disappointments and successes send me too easily into the blackest depths or to the pinnacle of happiness. And particularly, I cannot curb my impatience sufficiently when a specimen has been found. Walter Granger or any of the other trained men are content to work away the matrix around a fossil with a camel's hairbrush, grain by grain, waiting for the specimen to develop as they go down. Theirs is admittedly the proper way to proceed, but pick and shovel methods, which at least give quick results, are suited naturally to my restless spirit. (laughs) Perhaps a complete skeleton or a priceless skull lies below that bit of projecting bone and I simply cannot wait for days to know. Therefore, whenever one of the men is engaged upon the delicate operation of removing a specimen, the chief paleontologist issues an ultimatum to the leader of the expedition Thou shalt not approach this sacred spot unless thy pick is left behind. End quote.
0: So he would have been right at home with Marsh and Cope with the dynamite, yeah. <laughs> trying to get the fossils out <laughs> as fast as possible.
1: Yeah, that's true. But by the 1920s, they'd moved past that.
0: That's good. There were a lot of really beautiful skeletons they found. I'm glad they weren't just bashing through all of them with dynamite and pickaxes.
1: Yeah. One interesting thing on their expedition, there was no rain in the years between their expeditions. So they're able to follow the tracks of their cars from 10 months before. Oh, wow. On the second one, I think it was. They found so many specimens on their expeditions that it depleted their supplies. They had to use a lot of flour to protect the fossils. The team unanimously said to use the flour for work, which meant less food for them. (laughs) They also used all of their burlap, so they had to cut off tent flaps, and then they used towels, washcloths, and eventually their clothes to wrap up the fossils. (laughs) Andrews wrote, quote, "'Everyone contributed something—socks, trousers, shirts, or underclothes. There is in the collection a beautiful dinosaur skull fortified with strips from my pajamas,' And Frederick Morris, after considerable thought, presented one of his two pairs of trousers, end quote.
0: <laughs> That's awesome.
1: It's very dedicated.
0: I hope those jackets are still preserved of like <laughs> chunks of clothing.
1: it would be pretty funny. Uh, Andrews had a lot of great anecdotes and quotes also about his adventures. So I'll read a few of them here. The first one is, quote, I wanted to go everywhere. I would have started on a day's notice for the North Pole or the South to the jungle or the desert. It made not the slightest difference to me, end quote. Hmm. He always wanted to be an explorer. He also wrote, quote, my wife and I spent one of the most delightful years of our lives in Mongolia, North China, on the second Asiatic expedition of the American Museum of Natural History. Now, Yivet, Again, she traveled with him. She was also the official photographer because she was also associated with the AMH. And his book, Across Mongolian Plains, if you end up reading it, it, includes an overview of the history of Mongolia. The style of that particular book reminded me of Franz Napsch's memoirs because it's a bit more about his adventures and the people along the way than the fieldwork. Sometimes Andrews does come off as a little bit judgy and misogynistic, like, When he divorced his wife and he said women complain more than men when they're on adventure, they couldn't handle it kind of thing. He also wrote about Mongolian people as being like, quote, an untaught child of nature and the sense of modesty or decency as we conceive it does not enter into his scheme of life. Which is not a great description.
0: Pretty colonial, yeah.
1: Yeah. But overall, he did seem to like the people he came across in his travels. Some other quotes of his. Quote, It was a perfect autumn night. Every star in the world of space seemed to have been crowded into our own particular expanse of sky, and each one glowed like a tiny lantern, when I had found a patch of sand and had dug a trench for my hip and shoulder, crawled into the sleeping bag, and lay for half an hour looking up at the bespangled canopy above my head. Again, the magic of the desert night was in my blood, and I blessed the fate which had carried me away from the roar and rush of New York with its hurrying crowds but I felt a pang of envy when, far away in the distance, there came the mellow notes of a camel bell. Dong, 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 it sounded, sweet and clear as cathedral chimes. With surging blood, I listened until I caught the measured tread of padded feet and saw the black silhouettes of rounded bodies and curving necks. Oh, to be with them, to travel as Marco Polo traveled, and to learn to know the heart of the desert in the long night marches. Before I closed my eyes that night, I vowed that when the war was done, and I was free to travel where I willed, I would come again to the desert as the great Venetian came, end quote.
0: Do you know which war he's talking about?
1: I believe he's referring to all the fighting that happened in China. I think it's the civil war. Gotcha. Another quote is, until we left Urga, the second time Mongolia to us had meant only the Gobi Desert and the boundless rolling plains. When we set our faces northward, we found it was also a land of mountains and rivers, of somber forests and gorgeous flowers. He also wrote, quote, a new forest always thrills me mightily, be it of stately northern pines or a jungle tangle in the tropics. It is so filled with glamour and mystery that I enter it with a delightful feeling of expectation. There's so much that is concealed from view. It is so pregnant with the possibility of surprises that I am as excited as a child on Christmas morning, end quote.
0: I love trees, too. (laughs) And forests.
1: Because it just goes towards his exploratory nature, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That is a good point, though. Mongolia isn't just these sand dunes and dinosaur fossils. Mm -hmm. It's a really varied landscape.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to see, it sounds like. I hope we make it someday. Just the last block of quotes, they go together. As I stood there in the brilliant sunlight, mentally planning the group, I thought how fortunate I was to have been born a naturalist. A sportsman shoots a deer and takes its head. Later, it hangs above his fireplace or in the trophy room. If he be one of imagination, in years to come it will bring back to him the feeling of the morning air, the fragrance of the pine trees, and the wild thrill of exultation as the buck went down. But it is a memory picture only and limited to himself. The mounted head can never bring to others the smallest part of the joy he felt and the scene he saw. The naturalist shares his pleasure, and, after all, it is largely that which counts. When the group is constructed in the museum under his direction, he can see reproduced with fidelity and in the minutest detail, this hidden corner of the world. He can share with thousands of city dwellers the joy of his hunt and teach them something of the animals he loves and the lands that they call their own. To his scientific training, he owes another source of pleasure. Every animal is a step in the solution of some one of nature's problems. Perhaps it is a new discovery, a species unknown to science. Asia is full of such surprises. I've already found many. Be the specimen large or small, it has fallen to your trap or rifle. There is the thrill of knowing that you have traced one more small line on the white portion of nature's map, end quote.
0: That's a really nice way of explaining why it's so exciting to find new paleontological specimens and then bring them to the public. Yeah. So you're like sharing that joy of discovery with everybody.
1: Exactly. You can tell that he loved what he did. Yeah. He did have some terrible things happen to him on his adventures. One example, going back to 1905, he and Montague White went on a duck hunting trip. So he's 21 years old. And they went during their spring break. They were both in college at the time. And that turned out to not be the best conditions. Rock River, where they went, had been rising steadily for days, though there were no big storms or weather changes, so a lot of people didn't notice. And while they're on their hunt, His friend, Montague Monty, accidentally dropped his paddle, and when he went to reach for it, he upset their boat, and both of them fell into the icy floodwaters. Oh, boy. Monty swam for shore, but he sank from view. Roy got swept in the opposite direction. He eventually got away from the current. He rested on a tree limb for a while until he had enough strength to pull himself ashore, and then he was able to reach for help after about an hour. And Monty's body, unfortunately, was found later.
0: So he didn't survive?
1: So Roy... Survive, but Monty didn't. And it could be that the loss of his friend shaped Roy Chapman Andrew's commitment to safety and being prepared while out in the field.
0: Maybe that's how he became an honorary Boy Scout. The motto is, be prepared.
1: Oh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know the details of that part. He had some other narrow death escapes, like the time his boat was charged by a wounded whale, or once he and his wife were nearly eaten by wild dogs, or Just... there were a couple close calls when he fell over cliffs, Uh, Once he was nearly caught by a large python, and twice he was nearly killed by bandits. Oh, man. True adventurer. One of the bandit stories, on April 17th of 1923, they left for the Gobi. This is their second expedition there. And they had to watch out for robberies on the Camel Trail. And Andrews spotted a man on horseback with a rifle barrel, and he figured that this man might be a bandit. So he shot from his thirty-eight revolver, but he didn't try to hit him. He wrote, quote, he disappeared abruptly, the would-be bandit. But then they came across four bandits. So Andrews, who's driving, he just sped up his car to scare these bandits' ponies. He wrote, quote, the car rushed down the hill roaring like an airplane. The ponies went mad with fright. <laughs> And Andrews got really close to the fourth bandit, and he said the man's hat was bobbing up and down, and that was too much of a temptation, so he fired at the hat four or five times to knock it off his head, but he didn't want to actually kill the man.
0: (laughs) He was shooting at his head?
1: Yeah, (laughs) just the hat.
0: Yeah, but it was like William (laughs) Tell. That's pretty risky.
1: (laughs) Well, he reported what happened later when he came to the commander of a detachment of Chinese soldiers, and that man was angry with Andrews because he didn't kill anyone. Andrews wrote, quote, I told him, however, that I was a peaceable explorer and that it was his business to kill brigands, not mine.
0: <laughs> That's really a ridiculous anecdote.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's why I had to share that one. <laughs> they also had some obstacles in the Gobi Desert, like sandstorms. They would occur really suddenly and they could swallow up their tents and blast gravel. It also got really cold sometimes. Like one time they huddled together in their fur coats for 12 hours because it was so cold. Hmm. Andrews did also accidentally shoot himself while he was hunting antelope in Mongolia. He accidentally released the safety and shot himself in the thigh.
0: Oh, boy, that can be really dangerous.
1: He was very lucky they had a surgeon on their team who saved him. And he was also very glad he could still walk after. Yeah. Then, of course, there were other obstacles. He wrote, quote, our work was carried on with a background of war, banditry and political intrigue, which made it exceedingly difficult. End quote. And that reminded me a lot of the Bone Wars.
0: Yeah, definitely. There are a lot of parallels, not only in the fact that it's bad y mm-hmm. but also, yeah, it's needing army escort type things and the battles between the rivals. Mm-hmm. I guess in this case, it's not so much rivals as bandits and him, but.
1: Yeah, and the politics of it all. Different politics, but they're still there. So, yes, he had to overcome some diplomatic obstacles, and he said he found those more difficult to deal with than the field work. There was fighting in the 1920s between Chiang Kai-shek and Chang Solin. Chiang Kai-shek commanded the Southern Army and planned to attack the North and bring the whole country under control of his party. So that meant that Andrews was preparing for his expeditions in different ways. There were also bombings. They were known as bombing breakfast in Peking or Beijing. Because every morning at 10 o'clock, a plane dropped a few bombs on the city and then flew back again to Cheng so lines. And if you were in Peking, you could watch the bombings from the roof of the Peking Hotel. Oh, wow. Apparently, Andrews tried to host a bombing breakfast one morning, but that day the plane was late.
0: <laughs> That's so crazy. Why would you do that?
1: I don't know. But anyway, he went with uh, what he called his number one boy, Lo, to the railway station to arrange sending motors for the expedition to Mongolia after... They didn't see any of the bombings happening. But a plane roared overhead, and a bomb landed 30 yards away from him. So Andrews accelerated his car, but then a second bomb landed in front of them. He wrote, Since we were both going in the same direction, I decided to let the plane win the race. So he jumped out of the car, and he ran to this armored train on the tracks. And Low flattened himself against a wall. Andrews crawled under the train with a dozen other people, and then another bomb exploded. And he wrote, quote, the iron fragments pinged against the car wheels like rain, and I never knew how small I could make myself until that moment. More fragments hit the train, and then an iron slug buried itself within two inches of his face. And he wrote, quote, I dug it out and burned my fingers nicely as it was red hot. Wow. Yeah, intense.
0: Seriously, that's like an action movie.
1: <laughs> oh, yes, which remi- we will get to that in a little bit. But that is a summary. Of Roy Chapman Andrews and a slice of his life in his expeditions in Mongolia. He, yeah, he definitely seemed to love his work and he found, he and his team found a lot.
0: And he was very lucky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, he's been cited like how Jurassic Park is cited as inspiring a whole generation of paleontologists. Roy Chapman Andrews is another one of those figures. Yeah. I mean, in that case, it's a real person yes. and just their biographies and stories alone were enough to inspire tons of paleontologists to get into the fields.
1: I think it helped, too, that he spent so much time writing about them and he published so many books.
0: Definitely. And now we're going to take a quick sponsor break. But when we're back, we're going to talk about our dinosaur of the day, Gravatholus.
1: And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Gravitholus, which was a request from Crow via our Patreon Discord. So thanks! Gravitholus was a Pachycephalosaurus that lived in the Lake Cretaceous in what is now Alberta, Canada, in the Dinosaur Park Formation. It looked somewhat similar to Pachycephalosaurus. It had a domed head, walked on two legs, and it had kind of short arms. It's estimated to be 9.8 feet or 3 meters long. The type species is Gravitholus alberdae. The holotype is an incomplete Heavily fused skull roof. It was described in 1979 by W.P. Wall and Peter Galton. And the genus name means heavy dome. And it could be that this dinosaur headbutted for mates or for territory.
0: Yeah, that debate about whether or not Pachycephalosaurus headbutted is still ongoing.
1: Mm-hmm. There's also debate over whether Gravitholus is distinct or synonymous with Stegosaurus. In 2020, Aaron Dyer and Mark Powers used synchrotron imaging to study the skull roof, and they proposed that Gravatholus was synonymous with Stegosaurus. They found that the differences between Gravatholus and Stegosaurus were due to ontogeny, and that the Gravatholus specimen was just a mature version of Stegosaurus.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah, so they could look inside the bone with a really high-power X-ray and see that the bone wasn't fully fused or in its final phase of development. Mm-hmm
1: that's why there's debate. The other pachycephalosaurs known from dinosaur park formation include Stegosaurus, Hansusia, and Foraminocephaly, though it's not clear if they all lived at the same time. And now onto our fun fact, because I'm doing our fun fact today.
0: <laughs> you just had so much to say about Roy Chapman Andrews.
1: I've got even more, yeah. <laughs> and maybe you noticed we didn't mention Indiana Jones when we were talking about Roy Chapman Andrews, but don't worry. We're talking about it now. So, yes, he may have been the inspiration for the character, Indiana Jones. However, neither George Lucas or any of the other film's creators have confirmed this. The Smithsonian Channel did an analysis, and they found that there was an indirect link where Andrews and other explorers were models for heroes in adventure movies in the 1940s and 1950s, and these heroes inspired Indiana Jones.
0: Yeah, so... You can't ignore the connections between Indiana Jones and Roy Chapman Andrews. Everything you see about him is like that seems like Roy Chapman Andrews. From like the luck mm-hmm. to where he was doing his work to like his sort of desire to go on these big expeditions and all that kind of stuff is very Indiana Jonesy.
1: And a couple of specific points too. Roy Chapman Andrews wore a broad-rimmed hat and he used guns to hunt animals and defend his team from bandits. Also Andrew said that they were driven out of a campsite on one of their expeditions by pit vipers, which are very poisonous.
0: <laughs> it, thus, Indiana Jones's dislike of snakes—being
1: afraid of them, yeah. Now, Roy Chapman Andrews said that he and his team killed 47 snakes in one night. <laughs> and he said the cold helps because it made the snakes sluggish.
0: <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Talk about looking for a silver lining. It was really cold and there were snakes everywhere. But because it was cold, it was easy to kill all the snakes.
1: Yep. <laughs> all the poisonous ones. Yes.
0: Yeah. So at the very least, Roy Chapman Andrews is like the the grandfather inspiration <laughs> of Indiana Jones because just 1 degree of separation possibly. Yes. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. If you'd like to get some links to the stories, to the books that Sabrina mentioned or read any other details about this episode, head over to inodino.com and check out our show notes.
1: Good day.